The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Spencer Levy, CBRE's Head of Research, who discusses rent control and its potential effects on the multifamily market. He describes how many legislative efforts to control rent are well-meaning but misguided, while changes in zoning could help solve shortages in affordable housing. Spencer offers great insight into what is a timely issue for CRE professionals, so don't miss this episode. Today I'm joined by Spencer Levy with CBRE, where he's both a senior economic advisor and the chairman of America's Research. Spencer helps develop and implement the company's global research strategy and business plan, but for our discussion, we wanted to zero in on growing interest in rent control. Cities across the country have been implementing different strategies to control rising rents, So we wanted to examine the current and future implications for commercial real estate professionals. Spencer, rent control measures seem to be aimed at balancing demand and supply, but can you briefly summarize how we got here where rent control is a hot topic in many areas? Unfortunately, the history of rent control has not been kind to the supply of new housing. Uh, We've been studying rent control now going back over 100 years, uh, starting in London. And uh, quite candidly, when rent control first came in, which was about 100 years ago, uh, there were many more rental units then than there are today because we have found that rent control, while certainly is coming from the right place from a uh, trying to do the right thing standpoint, uh, ends up being uh, self-destructive in terms of eliminating additional supply. Uh, And we see this in a variety of different ways, not only eliminating supply of new units, but we also see it uh, crimping the capital flows into existing units to the extent that you are limited on the amount you're able to raise rents, uh, even if you put in new CapEx. So we've gotten here because there is this affordable housing crisis, uh, but it is a solution that's being offered that I think is more destructive than constructive. The most constructive solutions are those that increase supply, not those that decrease capital flows. In areas like New York and uh, San Francisco and California as a whole, you know, how can developers and investors incorporate possible regulation um, when projecting costs and revenues? Well, that's really the thing. The, the, the biggest risk factor from an investor or developer's point of view is uncertainty and the uncertainty of what's coming next. How much more are they going to restrict my ability to take a unit to market rate pricing? How are they going to restrict my ability to have a capital improvement to the building and be able to pass that along to um, investors, uh, pass that along to tenants? I think the best thing that a developer can do is to be very uh, politically aware, politically savvy of what's happening uh, on the ground uh, and then do their best to uh, to uh, underwrite it. Uh, you know, there are some places now where we've seen a restriction in capital flows in part due to these changes in rent control. And uh, it has materially changed the dynamics of the marketplace. Uh, now, that could create opportunity for some folks who see uh, through these issues. But for many, uh, it's caused them to uh, pull back on capital to some of the most restrictive markets. And that kind of what you were saying, that that's negating the point of these 
regulations or legislations. Yeah, I'm going to get I'm going to give a shout out now to a market if I can. I'm going to give a shout out to Minneapolis. And why am I giving a shout out to Minneapolis? Other than the fact I was there three weeks ago and had a great time with some terrific people. I'm giving them a shout out because they did what I considered to be the most constructive solution, one that I would like to see implemented all over, which is they changed their zoning laws within the city limits that in single family zoned areas, you're now able to go vertical um, several floors to be able to create more vertical density. This is precisely the type of solution that they tried to do in California, uh, but was shot down. It was shot down by the um, state legislature, and they were trying to do it near transit-oriented developments uh, in suburban areas. Um, In the absence of going vertical, uh, you're going to see more suburban sprawl, you're going to see more single-family homes, and you're going to have a continued affordable housing crisis. Because what I suggest to everybody, and I'll, I'll say it right here on the call, the sky is the solution. Vertical density is the solution to the affordable housing crisis. And the best way to solve that issue is to change the restrictive single-family zoning restrictions, which applause to Minneapolis was what they did. Do you think the the push towards rent control is just is an easier concept to, to understand for the, the people involved in regulation and legislation? Well, I certainly think it's easy for them to understand. And I think it's unfortunately um, self-destructive. And that's been proven for uh, for everybody who studied it. It just it just limits supply. And unfortunately, it may be politically popular, but it is uh, if your if your goal is to um, create more affordable housing units, um, that's not the way that uh, we would recommend. For markets where rent control is already an issue or is soon going to be an issue, you know, how can can owners and operators plan for capital expenditure knowing that their income is somewhat limited? Well, uh, that that's the challenge. And, and that really comes down to what are you willing to not only pay for your building if you're buying into the market, but number two, what are you going to pay for CapEx in that building? And you probably are capped uh, at a certain level. Now, the, the, the downside of that isn't just you're not going to put CapEx in. The real downside of that is you're not employing the plumbers, the carpenters and the other trades folks that would have done the work. So it has this trickle down negative impact, not only on not creating more affordable housing units, more updated modern units. It also destroys jobs uh, for the tradespeople that otherwise would have done work on these units. And you mentioned kind of the, the solution is in the sky and, and Minneapolis is, is a great example for markets like New York and San Francisco that are, are so saturated. What can be done there outside of, of rent controls to help boost affordable affordable housing? Well, there are a lot of creative solutions being offered out there, and I'll give you a couple. And some of these will sound a little bit off the wall, but they are actually being proposed. Hong Kong is proposing building a $80 billion island right in the middle of the harbor uh, to build more affordable housing. Copenhagen, which is where I was in September, is proposing to put a $20 billion island in the middle of the harbor to build affordable housing. Well, every time I go to San Francisco, I take a look out the window of our office and I see Treasure Island, uh, which is halfway between San Francisco and Oakland, right under the Bay Bridge. And I ask myself, why is that not being developed into affordable housing? Because right now it's, it's, it's completely underdeveloped. It may have a few military bases on it, but to me, that is exhibit A of where we should start building. Uh, but I also would support changing the zoning laws within San Francisco to allow more vertical density. And outside of, of multifamily, are there other market sectors that are facing challenges from rent control, whether it be industrial, retail, or office? No, rent control is really limited to the multifamily sector. You, these other sectors 
don't seem to have the same political will to cap um, rents. At the same time, what we are seeing in certain markets is the um, change in tax assessments on office buildings in particular, uh, which uh, shifts some of the burden from single family onto uh, office. And that has the same essential implication of rent control by capping or rather by increasing the taxes on commercial buildings, you're essentially uh, putting a lid on rent growth in those markets. Is there something the industry could do as a whole to kind of let people know that 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 rent control is a consideration, affordable housing is a consideration, but these rent control legislation or, or initiatives are just not the way to get it done? Well, look, the uh, I'll say this in a humorous way. Uh, because it's a serious issue that I scream from the mountaintops that this is important and we as an industry need to get in front of it. But the issue isn't Gordon Gecko that's preventing new affordable housing units, though a lot of people like to think so. The issue is the little old lady in Pasadena who has restrictions uh, through things known as nimbyism, not in my backyardism, that simply will not allow the vertical density to be in their communities. And so in the absence of those uh, loosening of those restrictions, um, I think that uh, we're going to be in this fight uh, of misperception that it's the industry, that it's somehow our fault, per se, that uh, we're not allowing these units. There's nothing further from the truth. If you give us the ability to build, we will build. But we can't build if the restrictions are such that um, the price of land then gets more expensive. It's, it's, un- it's unfortunately a vicious cycle. As you restrict the number or the availability of inexpensive land to build, the other land gets more expensive, and then you build even less affordable housing units because you have to build uh, with a certain amount of rent in order to recoup your land costs. And as far as the hesitation for vertical building, does that come from a lack of, of infrastructure to be built to, to match the, the, the increased building, or, or where does the, the kind of the hesitancy towards allowing such building? Well, look, it, there are some of the, there are some very good people who don't want to have vertical density in their communities uh, for very bad reasons. And these reasons are uh, not allowing, uh, quite candidly, people of a lower socioeconomic strata uh, to live in their communities, go to their schools. That is the number one reason why uh, we're not seeing a lot of vertical density. It's, it's unfortunate, but uh, there's a lot of that out there. Uh, the infrastructure issue is solvable. And how is that solvable? It's solvable because even in California, when they were looking at putting additional vertical density into these communities, uh, it was going to be near transit stops. And Los Angeles was trying to do it there, there. And actually, L.A. actually has been at the forefront of actually getting some of this stuff done, trying to change the zoning laws near near transit stops. So kudos to Eric Garcetti and, and the city of Los Angeles uh, for, for really being a leader on that. But uh, the suburban communities within California shot it down, even near transit stops. So uh, to me, uh, the infrastructure issue uh, is solvable by building uh, more density near the existing infrastructure. So with these issues kind of expanding out from urban centers to, to suburban transit areas, this isn't just to San Francisco or just a Manhattan problem. It seems like this is an issue that that is slowly expanding from city centers to suburbs and then eventually to, to, to the the outer exurbs. The, the issue is everywhere. Um, and, and it comes down to the other, the haves versus have nots, however you want to couch it. But communities are reluctant to allow uh, other folks into their communities uh, that would, um, you know, use their schools and other things that um, really is uh, not a motivation that I have any uh, respect for at all. But nevertheless, that is the motivation. 
And so the, um, the ability uh, to go vertical uh, near transit stops is the solution. And I would also add that uh, they need to be as close as possible to the place of work while infrastructure or putting it at a transit stop is a, is a solution. It is the second best solution. The best solution is to put more mixed income housing near where folks work in city centers. Uh, but that uh, runs into the issue of the exorbitant cost of land, uh, which makes it uh, extremely challenging. And as far as areas, primarily uh, New York, which has a long history of rent control regulations, how has the industry responded kind of once things have settled down or once the industry learns how things kind of work? Is there, does money dry up? Does it, does the smart money still find ways to work in these areas? Well, they do. But unfortunately, because so many units are rent controlled and it's very hard to convert them into for market uh, housing. There are ways to do it, and many people follow that strategy. Uh, it, it just basically increases the cost of all other housing in those markets. Any markets that have a substantial amount of rent control, the four market housing uh, prices are just a lot higher uh, because there's a limited supply. I came across a recent, there's a Stanford economist report that found that the rent control in San Francisco limited mobility by 20% and reduced investment by 15%. It also stated that the lost rental housing supply drove up market rents in the long run, undermining the goals of the law. In a very straightforward way, how do you convince proponents of rent control laws that the evidence doesn't support your case? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we're not dealing with a situation here where uh, facts and logic always uh, prevail. Uh, we're dealing with a situation here where um, people are looking at this through their own personal lens of self-interest. And even if I give them insurmountable facts that it's not true, um, political will uh, might often shift it the other way. Do you think it's a matter of time of seeing these attempts either fail or stall and then the equilibrium will, will balance out and people will see that that rent control isn't the issue or isn't the solution? Well, regrettably, my fear is that things are going to get worse before they get better. Because I think the, the, the trend right now is more rent control, not less. It's more push for affordable housing, not less. And I, by the way, I push for affordable housing. I want more affordable housing. I, the, and the solution is right in front of us. It is loosened zoning restrictions in single family areas. And if you want to limit it to those nearest transit stops, I'll start there. That is the solution. Mm -hmm. And people just won't do it for some of the reasons we laid out before. Yeah, you mentioned kind of the, the NIMBY approach to, to vertical building. What other obstacles do you see kind of popping up again and again in the pursuit of uh, more friendly zoning laws? Well, look, I think I've given you the number one reason for it. I think what you really need to, to, to have is some type of um, more aggressive approach, uh, not only towards changing zoning laws, but I would support some more aggressive use of eminent domain. Uh, there was a famous Supreme Court case that came out uh, about uh, 10 years ago in Bridgeport, Connecticut, called the Kelo decision, which allows you to take uh, private land for private purpose. Um, I think that there is there is good case to be made that that should be used more aggressively in certain areas that are just intransient on allowing more vertical density. And then in terms of I think we covered as people who are looking to invest in areas that already are subject to rent control. Is there uh, an, an angle to take? Is there a way to be profitable in investments? You know, how, how do you factor in a cap on your income when looking to, for investments? 
Well, look, I think you go to those places that uh, you think you can get the best risk adjusted return on your capital. And notwithstanding the fact that markets like New York, San Francisco, et cetera, seem to be a greater risk of more rent control, uh, they're still terrific long-term markets. So I still encourage my clients. In fact, I was on a call with a client this morning encouraging them to buy multifamily in New York today, uh, in part because of this overhang, because I think uh, this too shall pass. Uh, and I think if they have a long-term outlook, uh, they could get some great opportunities today. So even in those most restrictive markets or the markets of greater risk of restriction, uh, I think the right capital source might find great opportunities there. We've covered it a little bit, but as far as the industry, just by its nature, is going to be hesitant to to agree to these rent controls and increased regulations. But what's a plan B for CRE professionals to let communities know that they are focused on rent control but they want to do it in a responsible manner. Uh, all I can say is that uh, your city is immobile, but capital and talent can go anywhere and they will go to where it's most efficient. And those cities that are going to be most restrictive in their ability to uh, bring in new capital, new development uh, are eventually going to get left behind by those that don't. So the, the risk factor is that uh, many of these communities are cutting off their nose to spite their face. One final question. You mentioned rethinking zoning laws is one way to to allow for more affordable housing. If you had, you know, one dream shot, what wish would you want to increase affordable housing or to allow for affordable housing to be built? I think I gave it to you. It's the, it's the, it's the change in zoning laws. It's as simple as that. And, and if you want to start near transit stops, start there. But I think it's it, it, the solution is obvious and it's right in front of our face. That's it. Let's go with that. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, uh, thank you, Spencer, for your time. Thank you very much. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.